0: Writer's House, Words for Winter. Um, I'm April Pierce, and I'm pleased to be here with you tonight. Uh, we have a few readers, and this is just a sort of selection of the many voices coming out of Oxford. They're more sort of on the walls, so if you haven't had a chance to um, read the poems and stories that are all around you, please do so uh, afterwards. And I'm just going to introduce you now to Eula, who is our events director, and she's going to uh, introduce our performers and readers.
1: First up, we have Pete Sammet. Pete has explored many styles of guitar since his student days, described as gossamer by the host of Oxford's Cat Wheels Club. Pete has a passion for alternative tunings and delicate fingerstyle guitar, and has been influenced by artists such as Nick Drake, Radiohead, David Gilmour, and folk country. Look them, the cats.
2: So this piece uh, its one of my comfort pieces when I'm in a new venue. Thank you. So,
3: I don't no, I, I come from a non-religious family, obviously a-religious, but, um, but Christmas is something we always celebrate, um, just because it's habit, I guess. And most people, when they come home for, for winter, they often associate with for Christmas, I think, because when he's working or at school. So whenever I come home, my mum was always playing carols, so I thought he would play a,
2: a carol.
1: until she was nine years old. Her impoverished childhood lifestyle and landscape differ greatly from her surroundings today and her writings reflect these contradictory qualities. She's heavily inspired by the work of contemporary poets such as Caroline Duffy, Langleave, Langley, and Ruthie Corr. Not only does Shelley write poetry and short stories, she's also an artist and has drawn a quest of portraits of various kinds. Although she was expected to become a doctor, she dissipated her family's wishes to pursue English literature and film studies at Oxford Brooks. She uses many mediums to express herself and has an interest in using new media to formats poetically. And currently she's working on a collection of poems called Blues and Lilacs. And she's doing a poem for this evening. You know, and poetry that explores uh, migration, literature, love and networks. Thank
4: you. It's too tall for me. <laughs> um, I'll be reading a poem called Winter Faith and I hope you like it. A silver flakes kiss softly the barren evergreen. <laughs> it. Okay, I'm okay, start again. Um, so it's called Winter Fates. A silver flakes kiss softly the barren evergreen. Preserve the last warmth of nature's breath in garlands of diamonds and crystalline. Encompass eternal the purity of beauty, but cautious must the vulnerable owner threat for survive the wild of toll, but starved to change unfortunate. Hear the spirit of harmonious laughter amidst the chilly winter air, and conceive the flow of time beneath the translucent crust of winter fair. Witness the angel's nurtured gaze upon the children whose need innocence and compassion bred. But upon the shadow of her back, behind those flightless wings, exists a girl who eyed with faded strengths. And beyond the crescent rings of sun and rivulets, a lost boy found doubts and ponders the truth and lies behind every smile. Now the scene is set, but the winter's time, for fate and destiny has collided with time. Remember the first time we met? She asked him as her fingers fondly cross his woven lots of hair. Behind the angel with the broken wings. Gently she kisses his knowing lips. Yes. He gazes at her fondly as he hands her a small box wrapped in rubies of gold. She smiles excitedly at him before unwrapping his gift. It's an angel, she gasps in adoration. Your smile was sad, but not anymore. Merry Christmas, my love, he answers.
1: We've got Erica McAfee, Erica's born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, but currently teaches English at Keeble College, Oxford, where she lives with her husband and two children. Her poems and translations have been published in magazines such as The Times Literary Supplement, The New Criterion, The Spectator, and Slate, and her essays have appeared in magazines including literary imagination, modernism slash modernity, and studies of yes. romanticism. She, studies English and Latin she studied English and Latin poetry as an undergraduate at Harvard before earning an MPhil from Cambridge and a PhD from Yale. Uh, the Country Gambler First of Poems was published by Sheer Books in 2016.
5: Thank you very much for <laughs> having Can you hear me? This is this good? Um, so I'm going to read four very short poems uh, from my collection, uh, which I, uh, I originally thought I would order this collection by season, <laughs> but. Um, Autumn was so long that I had to come up with another um, way of doing it. So. Uh, but I'll read a few winter poems. So I, I love spring and I write a lot of poems about flowers, but one of the plants I love the most because it looks like flowers but they bloom year-round, including in winter, is the Sempervivum, which is a kind of um, alpine, sort of succulent plant. And I begin the book with this little piece, Semper Vivo. Long living plant that flowers on the ground and spawns in circles round itself, whose low and quiet center stores a gravity not surpassed by stone down to the pit, and that waits on no sustenance, but still feeds on both drought and faith. Put forth into these leaves As with a new rosette, your not quite pink teeth, your feather-white breath. This poem, this next poem, um, you know when you have terrible dreams, something that you invent that is so awful that you're sort of filled with guilt, that you somehow made that thing your own mind? Uh, it's (laughs) It's called Dragonfly. What would it do if it knew a blizzard was coming? That there'll be snow underfoot tomorrow morning. That the grasses that bind the river will all be frozen. That the deer that step there will crack them. That the stems themselves will die. This insect thrones over the river through the squat trees that lean from the fens, its back the bluest blue, its vibratory wings swinging its weight among the bulrushes. In my dream, the man I love is devoured by lions before my eyes. I stand there lassoing until he tells me to run away, and I run away. Often, what I think is beautiful in this world becomes so beautiful in my mind that it dies. Why should my poem kill a dragonfly? I'm glad you see the humor in that. (laughs) Uh, Two more little poems. This is a translation from one of my favorite poets, Horace. Uh, And it's a nice poem about winter, about appreciating what you've got about sort of buckling down and taking what you've got and making the best of it. There's romance in winter, too. It's called The Sabine Jar. Do you see how Mount Sorokte shines in the distance, white under a mantle of snow? Already now, the trees cannot sustain their burdens. The stream stands still with ice. Let's dispel the cold. You pile the wood high in the fireplace, and I'll take down that sabine jar we filled four years ago, and we'll stay indoors, leaving all to chance. As soon as the sea winds quiet down, the cypress too will stop, and our old mountain ash. About tomorrow, never ask. Each day is a gain. While you're still young, don't scorn sweet loves and dances. Each night in all the parks and every city square, there's secret whispering in the dark at a certain hour. And just now, in the corner of some bar, there's a girl laughing while a gift is slipping from her arm. Or is it from her finger? And she is only pretending to resist. Uh, I'll, I'll read one more poem. This is what I really feel about winter kind of a sad poem. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, and there was one um, year. The sandhill cranes fly over our house. And one year, we saw a sandhill crane in our front yard. And that was extremely exciting. Um, And he was sort of a celebrity in the neighborhood. And then one day, he just wasn't there anymore. The sandhill crane. When he decided to weather the early frosts and outstay, fallen leaves all turned to mulch and graze our lawn in paces, with his neck looped back, his head protruding forward, both wings flapping over every step as if he were a farmer driving a herd, shuffling stray things into place, and always with his beak upturned, like when a stifled feeling rises in the throat, and one claw tucked up in his down at the sight of us to pluck and preen and give his crown a shake. We called it luck, his staying on to nest among our pines. The dogwoods were out of season, but the pines were evergreen. So when he later disappeared one cold December morning, filled with snow and ice, our best defense was holding on to what we call migration, that what is beautiful and gone,
1: Merely flown. <clears throat> Next, we're going to hear from Nancy Campbell. Nancy is a writer who works across disciplines from poetry and essays to artist books. Nancy grew up in the Scottish borders and Northumberland, and her work is informed by these landscapes and borderlines. A series of residencies with Arctic research institutions has resulted in projects responding to cultural and climate change in polar and marine environments. Nancy's, Nancy's poetry collection, Disco Bay, which was described as a beautiful debut from a deft, dangerous, and dazzling new poet by Carolyn Duffy, was short to sit for the Forward Prize for Best First Collection in 2016. Her artist books include Proviso, Death of a Foster Son, and How to Say I Love You, in Greenlandic, an Arctic alphabet, which sees the frigates. Birgit's Skilled Award and is now reissued in a new edition by
2: Neil. It's lovely to be here with you to celebrate winter. Can you hear me okay? A A bit louder? Okay. This time of year, when it's cold, I always think the Arctic, and especially back to the island of Upernavik, where I wrote some of the poems I'm going to be reading tonight. This time of year in Upernavik, the average temperature will be minus seven degrees C, and the sun will have sunk below the horizon, and it's not going to come back again until February. So we're in for a long winter. since I returned from Greenland, several people asked me, "Did you find it difficult living in total of darkness?" Um, but my abiding memory of that island is all the light, the aurora borealis, the stars, and especially the lights of the windows of my neighbors on the island. So in a dark place, you can quite often make festive celebrations. I think that's what we're trying. To I'm going to start with a sonnet which brings a little bit of the winter of Greenland to Oxford. The Message Since I can't post a letter this far north, I'm sending you an arctic snowstorm. The worst weather Oxford's ever known. Deep drifts resisting shovel, salt, and thaw. Since I can't touch your winter skin, I appoint the most delicate snowflakes to fall into your arms, kiss your cold face, and silence the city I loved you in. I can't judge your heart's temperature, although I lay out the last glacier over the miles between us. Don't you hear the wind? It calls to know your nature. It's warmer than you think. For I have dressed that wild inquisitor in my own breath. When I was in Greenland, I started to learn a little bit of Greenlandic, as travelers do. If you were looking at the slides, you (coughs) would have seen the poem I'm going to read next which is an extract from the Greenlandic dictionary. (laughs) And I was fascinated uh, by the fact that the word for winter and the word for the year are the same, which gives an impression of how important winter is now. Forgive my pronunciation, any Greenlanders in the room. Seven words for winter. Uki Gata last winter Ukiok the winter the whole year Ukiput in winter during the year Ukipa The winter came upon her before she reached home or finished building her house. She has a good winter. It is a good winter. The winter has come.
3: The new year.
2: I mentioned the lights in the houses of my neighbors on the island. And they were very benign, but one can't help feeling afraid sometimes in in the darkness. And the next poem is slightly more sinister imagining of what might go on in someone's house at night. Hide and seek. Towards the north of the island, the hunter lives with his son. In a shed on stilts with a sunken roof, I live one house further on. The sun sets behind the mountain. Dusk bleeds into the snow. And the shade cast by the hunter's house reaches my bare window. From the harbor to the hillside, only two transoms shine and the wind slips like a knot between the hunter's house and mine. My windows face the water, frost grows across the glass. I watch my own reflection drown in a deep lead of dark. I cannot see around corners. I cannot see in the dark. I cannot tell. What moves behind these brittle panes of glass? Is it a restless iceberg, the tides washed ashore, this thing that intercepts the wind that suffocates my door? The hunter draws a heavy blind as soon as day is done, for his lamp would coat the moon with smoke and scorch the distant sun. And in his single sunken room, he waits silent sun, but he tells no one what he waits for, Though all know what he's done. I'd just like to finish uh, with a very short poem. Um, I've called it Dirge, which makes it sound very gloomy, but it's uh, it's just a song that someone might sing while fishing out in the cold. Sort of hoping that the the labor will be over soon and they can go home. Below the dark cliffs, the wide water. Below the wide water, the black seal. Within the black seal, the red fish. Within the red fish, the white wing. Within the white wing, the first ice. Under the first ice, the old sun, Under the old sun, the dark cliffs.
1: Thank you. <laughs> so our next and final reader is going Kate Glabishy. Kate is a Creative Writing Fellow at Oxford Brookes University and a writer and resident at Oxford Spires Academy. She's won a Forward Prize for her Poetry, the BBC National Short Story Prize, the Writers Guild Award for her memoir, and was shortlisted for the Costa Prize for her novel and the Ted Hughes Award for her radio work. And she's currently writing a book of essays about school. So, Kate Branson. Okay.
3: Oh. Just There we go. Because it's not fantastic. Can, can you hear me at the back? Yeah, brilliant, okay. Um, I thought I should read something new, um, and I was looking at what was on my computer, and it is vaguely about winter, and there is a baby in it, so I thought that would do. Um, it's, a, it's a series of essays about um, teaching in school. I've been teaching a long time, um, and this is a, just a short piece out of a, long, a longer piece about different kinds of exclusion, and the way that, that schools and indeed society runs on excluding people and making groups. Um, and it starts um, about eight years ago when I first took a job in what was then Oxford Community School um, and it was then and probably still is the most inclusive school in Oxford then it was probably inclusive as in it, it, it had almost exclusively people that couldn't go anywhere else um, and I had been invited to work in the inclusion unit which it was explained to me was the exclusion unit So um, in, in there, were a little group of people who I came to think of as the excluded because they had been excluded from everywhere by then. Um, and they had a most wonderful teacher called Miss B who, who appears in here. Um, and their the, the story starts in about January when, I, when I'm kind of wandering in. Um, I vaguely speculated that they might be kind of glamorous and rebellious and cool, um, but you'll find out what they were like really. <laughs> and so it happens that one morning in January, I make my way through dirty snow to a low, batten-boarded building at the edge of the school grounds. Inside, it's cosy, overheated, smelling of toast, and here is Miss B bustling towards me in a new, crackling dress. Miss, we're having a rough morning. How are you? Happy New Year. It's break time, and the girls are huddled around the heater, attempting to dry the ballet slippers in which they've walked to school. Anorexic Clarice has spread hands thin and veiny as leaves on the copper radiator cover. Ooh, she murmurs to herself like a grandmother, clutching her sweatshirt to a hollow chest. Ooh, I never did. Kylie begs as I pass. Miss, I've dropped my shoe. Get it out for us. She can't reach down the back because she's so tiny. Her leopard skin top is size three. And she can't get a ruler and give the thing a poke because such enterprise is beyond her. I get the shoe out. All the other kids in the room are unusually short too, in fact, except for Tom, who moves his long body as if it were a crane he'd recently been put in charge of, but none of them are thin. Dave in particular is mountainous, mountainous, burdened, as if his body had been dumped on him by a tip truck. Dave is flushed, but the other kids have poor, papery skin, and they're all white, though most of the kids in the neighbouring school are black. Because it seems that even the most traumatized Somalian refugee family can impose better order on their children than a native English one. And none of them, except spooky platinum angel who rarely attends in any case, are at all glamorous. They look older than they ought, if anything. Simon has premature red wrinkles on his broad, freckled forehead. And the girls have cheaply dyed hair and stout, saggy waists, so they look from the back like harmless middle-aged ladies queuing at the co-op but they are not harmless. Each one of these kids has the power to end learning in any mainstream class at any time. And each of their powers, as always in a a gathering of superheroes, is different. Gentle Tom, when asked to write, may put his head on the table and start to hum like a blue whale. Dave, so quiet mostly, careful of his outsized hands as puppies can turn suddenly, terrifyingly violent. Damage, it says on the report I've seen of him, damage, desks, chairs, doors, other kids. Kylie will ignore you, root through her extra large handbag for lipstick and start putting it on as if she were a bus passenger and you a faraway stop. If you ask for her attention, she may laugh in your face, outrage, astonished laughter as if you'd requested a snog. Vicky will announce a disability at high pitch like a train's hooter, then scissors, scissors, I can't use scissors, I can't miss too hard, doesn't work well doesn't work well out of comfort zone, it says on Vicky's report sheet. But her comfort zone seems passing small. The excluded are particularly ruffled and exhausted this morning because Miss B has induced them to take the exam for a GCSE module in science. Exams are not the excluded thing. thing. They have long records in avoiding them, walking out of them sleeping in them, Kylie, and throwing chairs at them, Dave. For Tom, who is severely dyslexic, the paper was as terrifying as dropping off a cliff, and now he is collapsed in a corner, drawing a picture in a biro of an unhappy small boy standing by a large teacher's desk. It's very good. I especially like the boy's meticulously foreshortened feet, twisting in dumb despair. Dave is beside Tom, watching, glass blue eyes, vacant head in those enormous Simon is in a different corner, twitching over his iPod, pulling the headphones in and out of his ear. Vicky was late, she just can't help herself, and is still finishing the paper in the outer lobby under the eye of Mrs. Nichols, the kind and motherly teaching assistant. Every time Vicky sighs or drops her fluffy pen or starts drilling through the page with it, Mrs. Nichols meets her eye and shakes her head. There is some doubt if Vicky will finish. She never has before. Nevertheless, Miss B gets out the chocolate to celebrate. After all, the rest took the exam. They all sat there, all through. It's worth celebrating. According to the report sheets I was shown at the start of the project, the excluded were scheduled to get G's this year. Today, several of them will have reached C grades, and Simon, who is smart as paint, at least a B. This is down to Miss B. So it's really (coughs) annoying, this thing, this way it keeps popping. No, it's okay. All right. I watched her teach science, clear and exact and demanding, and watched her do a number of other things too, tackle social services over the phone, talk down Dave, determined to leave the unit and smash something, phone Vicky in the co-op one, fags and persuade her the 50th time it's worth coming into school. Miss B's degree is in psychology, but what she does for the excluded is not theoretical, but cognitive and practical. She chivvies at these unpromising children. Chides them, cheers them. She mops up, phones up, bandages, salts. She creates unbending routines. She endlessly produces toast. She is without stint, without limit, without grudge. She is utterly reliable. Patience is often thought to be a passive quality, but Ms. Bees is active, intellectual, passionate, and remarkable. And it works, her super concentrated mothering. The excluded's comfort zone has already grown. For my wandering eyes to encompass scissors, papers, desks, the IU, some adults, me. It does have a long-lasting effect too, it seems. Most days, one of Miss B's graduates calls by to tell her how they're doing in college in sixth form, to get a dose of still ready affirmation. Now, here in the IU, it's me that does the Freudian stuff, So that was hardly the original intention. I'm supposed to be leading a writing project, one with notebooks, an internal e-group for editing fiction in progress. Note, notebooks, drafts. But the excluded aren't interested in notebooks or computers. They are barely interested in fiction, in fact. What they do want to do, with almost embarrassing pops simplicity, is write about themselves. And whatever Hillary Swank ideas I may have had at the start, this makes me uneasy. I'm nervous of the moments of revelation unqualified, I feel embarrassed, I become aware of my greedy writerly curiosity. Nevertheless, here they are and here am I, and there is no point in studying Verdunel here. So after a few dub sessions we've come up with a system. I read them something aloud. They love like little children to be read to. And in the brief piece afterwards they write things down, a version of what we've read usually something in a strong rhetorical frame that makes their hesitant thoughts sound grand and fine. Then Miss B and I gather the scribbles up, affirming as loudly and firmly as we can as we go, because otherwise they will destroy their work. They exclude it all have cripplingly low self-esteem. In the same way that they cannot sit exams, to get to school on time, or shift from radiators, they are unable to redraft their own work, because that would involve reading it. And as they wrote it, they know it is not worth doing so. So each week, I type and arrange their pieces nicely on an A3 sheet. I take their names off. That way, when we read them together, they can see past their own unworthiness and notice that their work is good. Today, the story is of Julie Oranger one called Note to My Sixth Grade Self. It's quite long, which will be restful for them after that exam. And I think they'll like the setting too, in America, in a high school, where soap opera and teenagehood happens. Well, listen to the story, and maybe Simon will tell us some more about his childhood, that savage, nearby hinterland full of dens and fires. Of all the excluded, Simon interests me most. He's so bright and mercurial and so full of stories. I remember setting a pigeon on fire, he wrote in my last session, how far it flew before it fell. And the first time I cut my head in a fight, I didn't realise it was bad until I looked in the mirror and saw my skull, which is well observed by anyone's standards, and neatly put too. Dave and Tom are much struck when I show them, typed out. It's incredible, says Vicky, released from her exam and suddenly flushed with enthusiasm. It could be in a book. Simon, it's better than most of the books I've read. But Simon isn't talking today, let alone leaning back in his chair and telling a spious bell stories of arrest and arson. He isn't in affirmation mood either, when he urges the others on in their work, weeps at their testimony and writes himself ringing prompts to resist peer pressure and move on and get qualifications and a job. He's dragged himself to the central table, but he's still plugging the earphones in and out, dumping his head in his hands. Eventually, he goes out into the lobby and sits with Mrs. Nicholls. Tom starts another drawing, asking Judith for permission first. The others, though, are writing like mad, except the ones who are crying I've really overdone it this time. Julie Oranger hit a hell of a nerve. Or maybe it was Simon's head. Or maybe even the exam. But something is loose in the room. Something dark. Dave is writing to his ten-year-old, tortured, probably autistic self about to share, throw a chair at a teacher. Throw harder, he writes. Think about it. Aim. This is light relief. Elsewhere, the excluded are remembering being shut in cupboards, knife attacks, sexual assaults, and over and over abuse by their parents, from simple neglect and abandonment through complicated excluding and scapegoating, all the way to sexual abuse and prostitution and outright criminal violence. The accounts of the poor spelling, the incontinent exclamation marks, the artless detail, truce. I slid down the stairs on my bum so they wouldn't hear me. You could see the blood on the carpets in track marks like a car. It was the big knife. At the drawer in the kitchen, he was my mum's friend. I know him all my life. However unglamorous these kids, the story of the crumpled bits of A4 are stark and clear as any Hollywood movie. Here in black and white is the liberal creed about children, that no one is bad, though many are sad and few are mad. Dave acts like a cornered dog because he's been kicked like a dog. Vicky's comfort zone is small because she has been comforted so little. Kylie laughs at you when you ask her to be a normal girl because she knows she comes from a socially despised family. Clarice controls her world through starving her body because her body has been taken out of her control. That children only do as they are children only do as they are done to and generally less. That children can escape the legacy of their parents and change. This is the founding myth of the IU, and walking around the classroom, poring over writing, removing apostrophes, passing the tissues, I believe it. Certainly, nothing the excluded have done, no bit of damage to desk, carpet, person, is anything to the damage done to them. For lack of something better to say, I repeat this to them. All of them are trying to do better, are doing better, are capable of kindness, too. As a group, They are strikingly nice, as Miss B often comments, to each other. Much more so -so than most children in their circumstances. Kylie is still writing. This is unusual. Normally, if she writes anything at all, it's dashed off in a few lines. Today, she hands me a full A4 sheet of paper. Letter to my baby at 16 weeks. Young mums are not slags. Their pregnancies are just as exciting as elder mums. Ah. I scan the page. The abortion refused. the ultrasound picture framed. And is the father taking responsibility? He's in the lobby, says Kylie, thumbing at Simon, slumped under his raincoat, murmuring to Mrs. Nichols, looking at every one of his 15-month years. He's being really good. I meet Miss B's eyes across the room. Miss, I say, and over Kylie's head, Make the internationally understood hand signal for pregnancy. Miss, she replies and makes the international sign But utter despair.
0: Again, Oxford Writer's House is here as a home for writers in Oxford, all writers in Oxford. So find this online. Um, thanks to City Council and to Youth and Daily for helping us with this event. And uh, Asila Radman, who's our uh, incoming director for 2017, 2017 to 2018. Um, and to Beulah and Liv, whose idea this was, and all of the team uh, helping with this event. All of us are working volunteer, and there's probably over 30 organizational volunteers who help us with the Oxford Writers House. It's really a community effort, um, and we're very grateful for everybody who's helped us. So thank you very much for coming, and I think we still have some Christmas crackers, so grab one and uh, have a drink and stay for a bit and chat with your neighbors. Um, Thank you very much, thanks.